Hey community, welcome to our sermon podcast for wanderers, seekers, and thinkers, for deconstructing and reconstructing. This is a feed of Open Door Church, a faith community focused on God's love and grace, a progressive church built around action, community, and people. Enjoy this week's message and check back often as we're posting new content every week. I had this idea, and you're all going to hate it, but listen, here's the deal. When I, went to, uh, when I went to do my master's degree, I did not want to do this, okay? I had no inclination at that point because I had done an internship. This is the whole backstory that you don't need at all. I had done this whole internship with, uh, with a pastor, and I probably shouldn't even name like states and stuff, but a pastor, and, and it just like all felt wrong. Um, it's like running through the motions. It was like this wealthy church and there was no challenge. And I, I was just like, why, why would I want to, I know I've like been thinking about this since grade three, but why would I want to do this when that's what it looks like? And that's probably what it looks like. Not the 5,000 member church where my preacher growing up spent 20 hours a week working on his sermon and 20 hours a week in prayer. Don't ask me how he gets that job. I don't know. All that to say, when I went to do my master's degree, I was excited about the Hebrew Bible and, uh, and studying that and then going on into academics. I didn't want to do this. Not that you're the second choice, but <laughs> that's where my head was at the time. So I have like this deep affinity for the Hebrew scriptures and, and sort of the origin stories of like, why are we doing this? Like Jesus comes along and then 2,000 years later we're in like these perfectly built churches with these perfectly curated bands and these beautiful graphics and uh, I don't know. You get my, my idea, right? Uh, and, and so I felt like this need to understand like where did all this come from? What does this start with? How do we, how do we understand uh, the the backstory. And one of the things that I found in the process is that, uh, process, sorry. One of the things that I said, that I found in that is that the beauty of the Bible doesn't start with Jesus. Did you know that? (laughs) That's a joke, but it's true. (laughs) It's true because that's how we think about it, that, uh, that Jesus came along and brought this, uh, revolutionary message, which he did. But there was, uh, there was these beautiful revelations all along through the history that Jesus is relying on and working from. And so we, we tend to gloss over that because it can be boring to read most of the Hebrew scripture or triggering if, uh, if you've had any violence in your past and you read God doing things that you go, well, how does God say to do that? Anyway, that's a different topic. We need to do a question series again, and you ask those kinds of questions so I can answer them bluntly. Um, so, I wanted to think about exile uh, because it's a huge piece of how the, the Hebrew text is shaped. It's shaped around this, this concept of exile and, and a people being in exile and then being restored from exile. And, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, a large piece of things, but we typically have a hard time thinking through 
all of the history that leads up. So this morning we're going to do a little bit of history, which you may not like, um, but it's necessary to understand exile and then what comes next. Um, but also, as we go along, I think it's important to think about uh, what does it what does it mean for a people to have their identity in marginalization when when God speaks and and when people tell God's story almost in the Hebrew text almost always it begins with I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that is I am the Lord your God who hears the cry of my people who recognizes suffering when it and sees injustice and steps in to take action. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's almost always how that is started in telling the story of who God is. But we start with Jesus, which is fine, just saying there's a bigger history and a, and a bigger story to be told than starting with Jesus. So, so what does it mean for a community, for a people to be set in their identity as a people of, a people that are oppressed, that are marginalized, that are on the outskirts, that are constantly, sometimes we overlook this in the story, but even when they have their own kingdom, Israel and Judah, they are constantly really at the whim of these larger nations around them that, that at any moment with the political will would and did destroy and remove them from their land. So they are, they're literally constantly at the edge of their seat saying, what's next? Who are we? <laughs> That's another one of my sermons Dean's playing online. Thanks. Thanks for the promoting. Uh, so, so I think that's important. Now, here's the problem, and we're going to get to this later. We don't have to do this just yet, but here's the problem is if we are identifying ourselves with this tradition of being marginalized, we quickly get to the question of, are we marginalized now? Are we being persecuted? We don't get to say Merry Christmas anymore. <laughs> So we have these questions, right? Uh, and I think there's some value in those questions. We just have to be careful how we frame them and how we think about them. Uh, so let's talk about some history. Okay, so you've got, uh, you've got Moses in Egypt, okay? And we're in uh, Exodus, Deuteronomy here, people in Egypt, um, and, and from there, they leave, and they begin growing. They spend a bunch of time in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. Then uh, we go through this time period of conquering. Oh, my goodness. Uh, a friend of mine's been reading Joshua and Judges, and he's like, what am I supposed to do with all this? It's, like, really violent, and it is. Um, maybe we'll do that someday. But uh, so they go through this period of conquering, and they take this new land, and uh, eventually they beg God for a king, like all the other nations have a king. Can't we have a king? God says no. They do it anyway. Uh, and we end up with two nation states, Israel in the north 
and Judah in the south with, uh, with Jerusalem. And, uh, and so when you read the prophets, uh, this is a lot of, a lot of where that is, or the, or the kings. When you read the prophets and the kings and you hear about the north or the south or someone coming from the north or the south, uh, unless it's an enemy, it is referencing Judah in the south or Israel in the north. And, uh, and so this is, this is the backstory. This is the setting. Along comes a few nations that rise and that are just massive. Always Egypt is, is in the south. Uh, that is a constant threat at any time could change their feelings about the world around them and could, could just reap destruction on, uh, on the world of, uh, Israel and Judah. But along comes, uh, along comes a, State or a nation called Assyria. And Assyria has this idea that they should go conquer everything. And they begin doing that. And they, they are coming from the north. This is, uh, this is Nineveh. When we read Nineveh in the story of Jonah, this is Nineveh. Uh, and Assyria comes through in 722 and takes Israel, and there is no longer an Israel and a Judah. There is only Judah remaining. Assyria uh, rises and falls, and then comes along Babylon. Babylon's often that terrible, wicked, like we're just going to name the most wicked people we can come up with, Babylon. Uh, Babylon overtakes Assyria and becomes sort of the new superpower. But really, it's only for a few years. It's actually not that long. Uh, don't quote me. I'm almost positive. We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, is that name familiar? Anyway, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is, is like the length. I think I've got him in the right time period. Anyway, is like the length of Babylon's rise and fall. A few years after him comes uh, a new nation state, Persia. And this is where things get interesting for the Israelites because, um, sorry, Babylon takes Judah and Jerusalem. When Persia comes to power, they begin restoring all of this. They send people, Persia wants to take a new look at politics. Instead of conquering and removing people from the land, Persia thinks, what if we were nice to people? And we let them govern themselves, unless it gets out of hand. We let them govern themselves and, and sort of just oversee things. And that's how Persia works. So, so, um, so when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, which is where we're going to spend a lot of our time in this exile restoration conversation, Ezra is given the privilege of coming back from, uh, Persia and restoring the temple, and we enter this new period of, of Second Temple Judaism where they are able to live and breathe and have, again, at any moment, they change their minds, everything goes back to chaos. Um, but 522, sorry, 587, 722 Israel, 587 Judah. We good? Close enough? Doesn't matter. 
You're not going to remember those anyway, right? What happens is the Babylonians come in. They take, they skim all the important people, all the important people off the top of Jerusalem society. This was a method of controlling people. Um, you take over a land, you take the elite people from that land, and you move them somewhere else. What's left is uh, an inefficient group of people unable to rise up and fight back. So you don't have to deal with uprisings, you don't have to deal with uh, political unrest because you've taken all of the leadership from a community and you've moved them to a different land. They're not like imprisoned, they're just in a different land. This is exile. This is what exile means. Um, so, so here's the question. What does it mean, and over the next few weeks, we'll look at what does it mean to be in exile? What does it mean to have your culture, your family, your religious practices, your faith, your, uh, your economic status all ripped out from under you and have you placed in a new community with its own power structures, with its own dynamics, with its own religious uh, precedents and practices? What does it mean to go and live in that society? That's the question of exile. That's the story of this people. Now, here's the one caveat about this story. You probably don't care, but I think it's important. (laughs) One caveat. Remember how I said they take the leadership out and they move them, right? What does that mean? Some, maybe 80% of the people are still in Jerusalem and Judah. In the story of the Bible, those people don't get a voice. In the story of the Bible, uh, the exiled community writes the narrative. The exiled community claims the true, uh, claims to be the true people of Israel and Jerusalem. Sorry. And, and what's the people that are left don't have their story told. They're still there. They're still part of the land of Judah and Jerusalem. But we don't hear about them. And when we're told about the people of God, we only hear about the exiled community. Just, that's just a caveat. Just so you're thinking on the backside, what about these other people? Because there were a lot of them that did not get moved. Okay, so what does it mean to be in exile? It means that you have to figure out how you live in a culture and a system that's not yours. Uh, I think... We have communities here in Canada that very much experience this. I don't know if we think about it that often. Um, We talk sometimes about 
has someone that's moved here, an immigrant, a refugee, how have they assimilated? We mean, how have they given up their culture and their practices to fit in with Canadian culture and practices? And, uh, and this, is this, this is the question about exile. And that we're, we're talking a little bit different. Exile, right? We're removing people, placing them somewhere else. But, but any community that is living in a different location is experiencing the same kinds of questions. So as a refugee, you come here and everything that you've done on your normal day-to-day basis is switched, flipped upside down and backwards. You have no longer any voice in your community, uh, political influence, social influence. Everything is about how are you going to adjust to where you live now. If you decide to maintain your community boundaries and how you live, uh, what language you speak, uh, what foods you eat, uh, you are you are branded as one unwilling to assimilate, and it's your fault for any troubles you have because you didn't practice, do your life the way we've done life here. Does that make sense? Kind of, sort of, something like that. So when these people are taken to a new community, you have options. You have options. How are you going to live in this new space? You're going to throw out some options? Okay, someone picks you up, moves you to Syria. What do you do? What are your options? Learn a new language. Learn a new language, yeah. Try to fit in. Yeah. What? Right. Figuring out what's going to get you in trouble. Okay. What are your options to maintain? What happens if you like religiously? You're in a different place, right? What do you think? You can stick to your own people. So. Essentially, you're talking about how am I going to be involved in this new community? Now, if you have been removed from your land and you believe firmly that you are the people of God and God would not leave you here permanently, you're inclined to wall yourself off with the rest of your community Maintain your religious practices, fail to assimilate into the broader culture, fail to engage in the broader culture uh, politically, economically, um, socially, all of those things, right? Because God's going to send you back. God's going to take you back there so you don't have to worry about it. I'm just here for the time being. God's going to fix this. Which is sometimes a quite Christian perspective, if we can get sort of move into that for a moment. If Christian culture is not the broader culture, we have the same options to us. How are we going to live, breathe, function in the world? Often, we privatize things. We say, my faith is internal. Uh, It's about 
how I behave. It's about what I believe. It's about what happens on Sunday mornings. Um, it's about what happens inside my community. We, we gather our people and we privatize everything that we're doing. In exile, that's one of your options. The next option, of course, is to go out and engage. And we're going to do a week on this, so I won't say much here. But go out and engage. Go get a job. Uh, if you've been taught that you marry inside of this sphere of people, you go get married. Uh, if you, um, you know, are engaging the other peoples in the way of life and the the theological world that is now surrounds you in a different way, uh, engaging looks different. It doesn't have to be assimilating. You don't have to take those on to engage them. And I think that's an important piece that we'll hit as we go along. Uh, so we ask now, where do we sit now? What does it mean to identify with the exiled community of the past, uh, the oppressed people of Egypt, the uh, marginalized people? What does it mean to be have that as part of our story? One more piece of history, okay? Is it too much yet? No, we're fine? Okay. One more piece of history. Move through the uh, time of Jesus. Uh, we're not going to do all of that. Move through the time of Jesus. Uh, move into the early church. And move into an emperor named Constantine. I've ragged on Constantine in the past. But what happens when Constantine comes to power is Constantine makes Christianity the dominant Christian culture, sorry, makes the dominant narrative, the dominant culture, Christian culture. So in the past, Christians and the people of Israel and Judah before them and the people before them have sat on the margins of society. They've sat on the edges, this weird fringe group that doesn't fit in and doesn't belong because they believe in one God that what about all the others? And they don't practice with the, the city-states of, of the Greek system and they don't follow the, the gods of our time and actually be, believed them to be atheistic because of that. So what happens when your entire narrative has been marginalized people, and all of a sudden Constantine says, nope, guess what? Christianity is now the dominant story. You are the people. Christianity is in charge, and everything else now becomes marginalized. Fast forward to North America, when we still believe that Christianity is the dominant narrative and the dominant sort of hinge of our culture. And yet, we're in a changing time. Does that sound fair? Are those fair statements to make? 
We've gotten to run with our theology and our beliefs for a long time, tell you if you don't believe it, you're an outsider, and now we find ourselves in a more realistic position of seeing the world in a different way, that there are lots of groups around us that don't believe similar to us, and the dominant narrative is no longer Christianity, and we ask ourselves, are we returning to an exile period? This is where I get like, we're on thin ice now, okay? For Open Door, we're on thin ice because most of us, not all, most of us have a gut reaction to the way in which um, Christianity is displayed in our culture. Um, I joke about not being able to say Merry Christmas um, but it's not that funny when people really feel that way, that, that we can no longer say that because the world is changing and it's, it's bad, right? Um, when, uh, when, when the government says, oh, we're going to give you this money to hire interns, but you have to sign this statement and Christians all over Canada go, wait a second. That's not right. You don't get to tell me what I have to believe or not believe, right? Um, those, are, those are moments when our Christian community is saying, hold up, this kind of feels like persecution. Hold up, this kind of feels like exile. Hold up, I'm not supposed to be the one exiled or in persecution, so something's gone awry. We have to right the ship. So how do we respond to this? And then some of us feel like the Christian culture itself is the dominant thing, and we as a fringe group in the Christian culture have to speak out against that and live in this sort of exile place. And so we're in this very hazy situation, I should say. So one, are we post-exile? Should this be a world where Christianity is the dominant narrative and we uh, are standing up to make sure that that happens? Are we re-entering exile and, and uh, we have to figure out how to speak out against these people that are telling us we can't say Merry Christmas? Nobody's telling you that, by the way. What is our role? What's happening right now that our role is being questioned and, and determined? But the thing is that how we view this moment of exile or moment of diaspora or moment of, of being this, again, uh, less than dominant narrative culture piece of, of things, how we view that determines how we read our Bible, what important pieces of theology are here, and how we are to respond as people of faith. What are we supposed to be doing if we see ourselves re-entering a period of exile. Or are we in a persistent place of exile, yet somehow we were able to trick ourselves into believing otherwise, and somehow that we are always called to be outside of the power structure of the state, of culture, 
always reviewing the alternative way of life that we're supposed to be living. Just to tie this back into our last sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus consistently says, you've heard that life works like this. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, or love those who love you or, and hate those who hate you, or um, you have heard that it was said. And then he finishes that with, but let me tell you something. You're called to live outside of those expectations, outside an alternative view of the world that demands love over hate, that demands speaking truth to injustice, that demands living in an alternative place in the world. That's, that was Jesus all the way through, beginning to end. You are called to live in some sort of third way of life outside of the power structures, uh, responding to the power structures, yet uh, not succumbing to being one with them. And what happened when Constantine came to power is we took hook, line, and sinker the authority and willingness to be the power structure. Not a bit of that fits into the narrative of Jesus or the theology that Jesus brought to us. Not a bit fit into the history of the Israelites or the Judean people always marginalized, always on the edge, always hearing the voice of God speaking out on behalf of those on the fringes. So, your job over the next few weeks while we talk about, as we dig into the exile, into the restoration, and we think about what does it mean that this huge piece of, of our Hebrew Bible is built around exile and restoration? What does it mean for us to live and breathe faith with that as a piece of our history. So, first things first, you have to decide. I can't do this for you. I can tell you what I think, but I can't do this for you. You have to decide where do we fit in our current age as Christian believer, Jesus follower, wander in the desert, however you identify yourself in this context. Where do we fit in the world of exile and restoration? And I won't burden you with the next question. Just start there. Where, As you look out and experience and live out your faith in the world, where do we fit? Post-exile, persistent exile, Re-entering exile, what does that mean? Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Open Door Church. Our intro and outro music was created by Lee Rosevere and is used under a Creative Commons by attribution license. Have a great week. Ask the hard questions and explore God's love. Everyone is always welcome to join the journey with us at Open Door. Learn more at opendoorfamily.ca. That's opendoorfamily.ca.